Today on the Word Preacher Podcast, the need for confession, an unction, God is love, and the old angels and they who kept not their first estate. I'm Brett Jensen, and this is the Word Preacher Podcast. All right, today uh, we are looking at 1st through 3rd John and the book of Jude uh, towards the end of the New Testament. Um, Let's go ahead and get started in 1st John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. It reads as follows. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Okay, though we'll be getting to descriptions of God being love and and maybe some other titles, this is a clear description that essentially means God is truth. There are three cases that John covers here. Um, or uh, I will, I'll look at this. I'll look at this as, as three different situations. Um, we have a person who thinks that they have done nothing wrong. The, this is the kind of mentality of, I'm a good person, uh, or I, you know, I have no sins. I don't have to really worry about that. I'm just a good person. Uh, this sort of mentality is flawed because none of us are good people. I don't think we have to look very far in the past, any of us, to find a situation in which we have been selfish or cruel. Um, we, We've done things that have been petty and unkind. Pride and envy are nearly universal. Like even people that avoid major crimes, they will have situations where they are frustrated or flustered and, and they say something that's not good or do something that's not good. Whether it's uh, get angry at a person who cuts you off or refuse to help or whatever it might be. People are not good all the time. Uh, that's it's just not possible. Um, there's also a description here. Uh, he that is, uh, if we confess our sins, so the person who confesses that they have done wrong things, This is important. The role of confession allows us to declare the truth about our actions, about our nature. A person who is willing to say the truth, to speak the truth, is also capable of understanding the need for what John will later call propitiation, which in other words means our need for the atonement. The one who is the sacrifice, who makes everything right. Well, that's only necessary if we need someone to make something right. And if we aren't willing to admit that sometimes we're bad people, 
And we need help to make that right, to reconcile ourselves, then that's a problem. This third case um, is worded slightly different. The first case was if we say that we have no sin. And this third case is if we say that we have not sinned. And I will differentiate that by bringing up uh, that wasn't a sin type mentality. Or in other words, a person who seeks to excuse themselves or justify a specific act. You can see an example of this in the scriptures. King David was confronted by Nathan, who presented a, a metaphor, a parable, about a man who was killed so that a wealthy man who already had a lot of stuff could take his one lamb. And David immediately recognized in that situation that this man who had a lot and killed to take something that wasn't his, that was bad, that what he had done was wrong. But he had excused himself from doing essentially the same action in the case of Uriah the Hittite. This is the kind of thing that we see sometimes creep up even in popular culture, the I'm qualified to define sin mentality. Or do you even know a person who fill in the blank with some sin? Do you even know a person who indulges in drugs or homosexuality or fill in the blank with any number of things? Because, uh, you know, if you did, then you would agree with me and say that that's not a sin. Well, we aren't the ones that decide what is or isn't a sin. We never have been. We are not even capable of understanding the full impact that is made by our misdeeds. We are largely in the dark about a lot of the long-term effects or the spiritual effects uh, that can be had by the deeds that we do that are not good. Um, and and either of these cases, whether you're trying to justify, whether you're trying to just ignore the concept of sin entirely, the, you know, just try and be a good person by a nebulous standard of uh, moral relativism or, or some other, um, non-divine standard. Uh, this is not based on truth. A person can come closer to the truth when they are capable of seeing the wrong in themselves and confessing. This is critical. All right, moving on. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, it reads as follows. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. Okay, let's unpack that a little bit. 
This alludes to the coming of the Antichrist, and also an observation that there are already numerous Antichrists. These are individuals described, they were of us, in other words, were a part of the church, but then they left the church. They did not continue with us. In other words, these are those who escape and cannot help but persist in attacking the church. This was an issue in the days of Peter and John. It's an issue today as well. The worst enemies of the church are not those from without, but those from within who leave and cannot help themselves or cannot leave it alone. The difference between these types of people, or what can be done to protect against this, um, John points to something, an unction from the Holy One. Uh, this is a term that means an anointing, a ceremonial anointing or ordinance-based anointing. Anointing is an important process that has applied to various roles in the past. Consider how Elijah the Tishbite was commanded um, when he went up onto Horeb uh, and, and saw that God was not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but in a still small voice. The thing that the still small voice told him to do was to anoint three individuals to different roles. First, we have uh, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, uh, who was going to be anointed to become the new king of Israel. This was a nation who, at least in theory, recognized Jehovah, recognized the God of Israel. Um, and so having their king anointed, that sort of makes sense. But then also Hazael to become king of Syria. That's a foreign king who did not authoritatively recognize the God of Israel. But still the process was to anoint him to become the king of some other country. And of course, Elijah the, or Elisha, the son of Shaphat, uh, to take the place of Elijah. Uh, this is the role of a prophet. Anointings were used for each of these roles. And I think that's kind of interesting. A symbolic anointing with oil implies uh, not necessarily only one role, but in general being set apart from others for a specific and chosen task that is selected by God. It's God's involvement in what he wants us to accomplish. Uh, and I think that's significant. A person today can become chosen by seeking first forgiveness for their own sins, and second, committing to obey God and build his kingdom. And when you see this pairing of being cleaned and being set apart, um, just as baptism washes and cleans us prior to receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, which sets us apart from those who do not possess this gift. Ancient temple ordinances in the days of Moses involved washing the priests ceremonious, uh, ceremonially and anointing them so that they would be empowered 
to use the power of God in very specific ways for specific ordinances. Now, ordinances in general, they allow people to fulfill their purposes more completely. This is part of the reason that anointing was involved. Sure, Elijah could have just gone and said, hey, we're, you're going to be the next king. Um, but it meant something more. And the dedication that you saw when, actually, it wasn't Elijah who performed the anointings, it was it was other people who did, but it was based on this command that Elijah had received. But you see the commitment that Jehu, the son of Nimshi, had. It was to get rid of the house of Ahab, and he did, and it was epic. And I can hardly wait for uh, when we cover the Old Testament. Um, I've got a lot more to say on that, but uh, not for this podcast. Hazael as well. Um, totally, when he was anointed, when he found that this was a role that was ordained by God, even though he had no particular love for uh, Israel or the God of Israel, in fact, uh, Elisha wept when he anointed him because he knew that he would butcher many men and women and children in Israel. But he still did it, and it changed his perspective. He immediately went out and began to fulfill that role in a very entertaining fashion. Uh, and of course, Elisha, who was uh, immediately left what he was doing to follow Elijah and insisted on doing everything that was necessary so that he could be like Elijah the Tishbite, a prophet called by God. The anointing made a difference. Today, in the same way, temple ordinances and covenants prepare a person to be endowed with power by God himself. Uh, the same concept we can see mirrored even today. Uh, and that's significant. What has God anointed you to do? What is his task for you? And how can you find out? These are questions worth investigating for everyone. All right, moving on. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, a very famous verse. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. The Greek agape that is used in this passage to describe uh, the love of God, and ultimately God himself. Um, it's also used at length in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where it is translated in the King James Version as charity. That's important. It's an understanding that helps us remove some of the ambiguities that we have in the English term love. And some of these, like you don't immediately think of, but if you spend a little bit of time, they'll intuitively arise. For example, the love that a man has for his brother can be profound and move him to help even when personal sacrifice is required. The romantic love that a man has for his wife can also be profound and move him to help her when personal sacrifice is required. But we all intuitively understand that it's an entirely different kind of love. 
the type of feeling that a man has when consuming a delicious double cheeseburger could also be described as love, like saying, I love this burger. But it's a completely different kind of love. It could also be used to describe a covetous motivation. For example, Cain killed Abel because he loved Abel's flocks. This is not a good thing. Or it could be used to describe a propensity for doing something even when that thing is wrong. When you look at some alcoholic and say, well, that man sure loves his liquor, it's not a good thing. But we still use the same term, love, even though we intuitively understand this is not the same sort of feeling. Um, there are some people who would blend these various sources of, of love together and defend all manner of wrongdoing in the name of this verse in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. But, and I cannot overemphasize this, that is wrong. To understand what is meant when he's describing that God is love, you can stick with that description that Paul provides in 1 Corinthians 13. This same interpretation of agape that is used uh, and translated as charity, this is the type of, of love that God uh, is. This is what it says. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. So that's important because love, the kind of love that God is, it's not indulgent. It's not the cheeseburger. It's well-behaved. It's not that man loves his liquor. It thinks no evil. It's not Cain lusting after the flocks of Abel. It rejoices not in iniquity. It's not any other type of wrong that's associated with that. And it's important because God is love, this phrase that we have, which is critically important. It's not a justification for do whatever you want because God loves you. It's not a justification for that. All right, finally, let's go to the book of Jude. There's a passage here um, that is a little bit cryptic, and uh, I wanted to talk about it just briefly. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, 
He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. That's in Jude verses 4 through 6. What's interesting, there are apocryphal legends that surround um, some of the verses in Genesis chapter 6, first couple of verses, that read as follows. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. So the legends continue on this. And there is a little uh, application a little bit further in Genesis 6 that describe how giants were born. Um, some of these legends, these apocryphal stories, imply that it was a group of angels that left their estate with God to steal women and force them to have children with them against the commandments of God. And the resulting race of giants were Nephilim, uh, and they had great power. They also loved violence and drinking blood. And There's all sorts of weird stuff in the legends that are kind of ridiculous. But um, the main idea is, according to legend, all of these these giants, these people, were destroyed in the Great Flood in the days of Noah. Now, there's actually a lot of things that we don't know about what happened before the days of Noah. Um, other records that refer to this time before the Flood they have bizarre features. They, they talk about strange things. For example, there's a list of Sumerian kings in cuneiform writing, and they describe the reign of some of these pre-Diluvian or before-the-flood kings. Uh, they describe their reigns uh, measuring those in a unit called SARS, which is 3,600 years. And you have kings that are described as reigning for eight or 10, or even 12 SARS. One SAR being 3,600 years. I mean, and this is just an idea to throw in here. There's a lot that we don't know about the days before Noah. And while there are some stories that say things that are kind of incredible, we do know that there are some things that are kind of different about those days. Um, what, what, we, what we do understand from modern revelation is a little more about pre-mortality, which was even before those days. And this is more critical to understanding this angels who abandoned their first estate. You see, there was a group of angels that did not keep their first estate, as Jude indicates. But the chief antagonist was Lucifer, and his goal was to destroy the agency of man. We were there, and we kept our first estate, standing by our God and his Christ. Jude is using these examples to warn about the dangers of being casual with faith. If you think that you know better than God or his prophets and apostles, learn from the examples of the scriptures. He starts with these people that were doomed to 
to suffer in chains and darkness until the day of judgment, people who had something great and fell from it to satisfy themselves. Um, it really goes to show the truths that Jesus taught are timeless. He that exalteth himself shall be abased, but he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Jude goes on to say, These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit, but ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And if some have compassion making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. That's in verses 19 through 24. So, though people are motivated by different approaches, we have the love, we have the fear. Salvation is critical to our purpose. Before we were born, when we lived in our first estate, we accepted Christ. And if we embrace the truth, we are capable of following him here. We are largely here because of the great love that he has for us. Not any kind of love, the kind of permanent, charitable love that we should all strive to obtain. We can, like those of old, become his chosen and obtain this. Uh, we can become his anointed and fulfill the purpose for which we were sent here. If we confess and reject the sin and the dishonesty in our nature, and we embrace the truth, who is Jesus Christ. We appreciate all the support for the Word Preacher podcast. Next week, we will look at Revelation chapters 1 through 11, talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Of course, continue studying. There are other things in the epistles of John and in Jude worth learning. So by all means, continue your own independent study. And as always, fight on.